All right, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to John chapter 4. This morning we begin a brand new series through called Bread of Life, which is actually we're going back to the book of John. Um, Only this time we're kind of entering into a new season of Jesus' ministry, one that will be characterized by um, both extreme extreme, uh, popularity, rather, where people will be coming to him by the thousands, as well as widespread rejection of Jesus. In fact, we're going to see as we get into the next couple of chapters how um, Jesus' followers determine, many of them determine not to walk with Jesus anymore. They cannot stomach his teaching. And so, again, popularity and rejection will be sort of the cornerstones of this part of his ministry. Um, on the Sunday after Easter, I typically start a new series, a, a shorter, a brief series, so that those who are new on Easter, those who are visiting with us can kind of can uh, join in a new series. It kind of provides a fresh start. And then uh, we've done five weeks in Joan. And now we're coming back to, again, the Gospel of John. But before we get into that, let me just explain quickly why we're committed to expositional preaching. Uh, to exposit just means to explain the text, working our way through the text kind of verse by verse or section by section. There are, there are a bunch of reasons for this, and there were six that I kind of came up with off the top of my head, but I'm not going to give you all six. Let me just give you one. Um, when we exposit or explain a passage, in order to understand the meaning of that section, we must look at the immediate and the broader context. So you probably heard, um, if you've ever purchased a house or you know anything about real estate, the three most important rules about real estate are location, 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 right? That's what matters most when you're buying a house. Well, the three most important rules when you're trying to understand the scriptures are context, context, context. So when we're looking at a particular sentence, we want to know how does that sentence fit into the paragraph that it's in? And then we're going to look at a paragraph. We say, well, how does that fit in the overall book that it's in? And how does that book fit in the big story, the meta-narrative of the scriptures? And so we kind of look at all of those things together. And when we do this, week after week, something incredible happens. We start to see how it all fits together, how the whole Bible fits together, and how this single story is really has one main point, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every part of the Bible is either preparation for the gospel, presentation of the gospel, or the celebration of the gospel and its implications. So every passage must be considered in light of the big story. Now I know there are some folks who they spend all their time looking at uh, the syntax and the grammar and the literary context and the historical context and the cultural context, and we believe that those are all very important things. Those are critical, in fact. But that's not where it ends. Those actually serve, uh, those, they're the means to an end. And the, mean, the end is actually show, showing us the beauty and majesty of Jesus. So spending all of our time on just those things would be like spending 38 minutes talking about one vein on one leaf of one branch of one tree while not realizing the beauty of the forest we're in. So we want, to, we want to take it all in uh, together. Seminary president Joel Beek su- summarizes the benefit of expository uh, preaching this way. He says, such preaching teaches that Christ, the living word and the very embodiment of the truth, must be experientially known and embraced. 
It proclaims the need for sinners to experience who God is in His Son. Such preaching is liberating not only for the congregation, but also for the preacher. How freeing and reassuring it is for ministers to know that what God blesses in the ministry is not their ingenuity, intellect, insight, or persuasiveness, though all their gifts must be used in dependence on the Holy Spirit. Rather, God blesses the proclamation of His Son in the preaching of His own Word. So so the preaching that God blesses, the only kind of preaching that is transformational, the the only kind of preaching that's actually going to change anyone is gospel-centered preaching, which is, in fact, preaching Christ. So we look, at the, the, we look at the immediate text and we see how all of this points to Jesus. Maybe this is why John the Evangelist, in the book that we're studying now, he says this is the reason he wrote his book. He says these, are written, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now someone may say, well, but don't we need to be told what to do? I mean, I'm trying to live this Christian life, and I want to please God. I mean, surely we need to know what to do. And to that, I would say, yeah, we do need to, to be told what to do from the Scriptures. But the problem is, if the to-dos are not anchored in the gospel, then the to-dos will never actually get done. We'll just sort of become exhausted, lose heart. Now, the flip side is, when we preach Christ, what He's done Our hearts are actually so moved in a way that's mysterious and paradoxical. They're so moved that we actually want to obey the commands out of love for him. Martin Luther said, It is impossible for him who believes in Christ as a just Savior not to love and to do good. If, however, he does not do good nor love, it is sure that faith is not present. So all that to say, we're going back to the book of John And if you're wondering, well, why don't you do sort of topical things like other churches or themes or, you know, that sort of thing. We're not judging anybody who takes a different approach. But we believe that most of the time, 90% of the time, say that the regular diet of the church should be expositing the text, looking to extol and showcase the beauty of Jesus. The best way to feed those who are hungry, to guide those who are lost, to satisfy our souls is to open up the written word and see how it testifies to the living word. So that's what we're going to do in John as we continue. Now, um, John chapter 4, we're going to cover verses 46 through 54, but let me begin by reading 46 through 49. God's word reads this way. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill, When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. So I want to pause there because John tells us that this is Jesus' second visit to Cana. This is is Cana 2.0. This is the sequel, you might say. Now, Normally, sequels are not as good as the originals, are they? Anybody seen Jaws 2, The Revenge? Nobody's ever seen that, right? I mean, it's got the same mechanical shark, the same haunting music, the same blood in the water, but it was, you know, it was a bit of a bomb. Um, how about Speed 2, Cruise Control? 
No one's ever seen this. Right? It brings about misery when you, you just mention the name. Um, the first one was pretty good. Sandra Bullock, Keanu Reeves, it was fine. But the second one just didn't do too well. How about uh, Crocodile Dundee 2, Los Angeles? The first time Crocodile Dundee came from Australia, he touched down in New York City. And that was, that was pretty good. That was pretty riveting. There was some funny stuff. You may remember the line, that's not a knife. This is a knife, right? I'm sorry. I'm terrible at accents. My, uh, my family tells me anytime I do an accent, regardless of where it's from, I always sound like a leprechaun. But, um, but you, may, you may remember that particular phrase, and that was a pretty funny movie. But, you know, the sequel, by the time we got to the sequel, the whole shtick was kind of tired and, and uh, the movie tanked. Episode twos are often fraught with risk. What would happen when Jesus would return to this same region? The first time that Jesus was in Cana... It was for a celebration where Jesus actually saved the wedding host from embarrassment. And it was because of that miracle, because of that sign, that the text tells us that Jesus manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. So the first time he was in Cana was a, was a really big deal. Now the second time, it's, it's actually more serious. It's a rescue mission. Jesus is fresh off a trip to Judea where he sort of rearranged the, the furniture in the temple uh, in Jerusalem, then he ran into Nicodemus at night and had this, uh, this powerful exchange with Nicodemus. And then he went through the territory of the enemy, uh, Samaria, and he spent time talking to a Samaritan woman at a well. And now he's back in Galilee where he encounters this royal official. Now here's what we're going to see this morning through this encounter. Three exercises of a growing faith. Three exercises of a growing faith. Episode 2 in Cana is far more serious than a wedding host running out of wine. There's a life on the line. And there's a dad who's in panic mode, and rightfully so. His son is dying down in Capernaum. He's not in Cana. Capernaum is, is, is down by the Sea of Galilee. And I say down by because it's not only 20 miles away, but it's also about 1,500 feet lower in terms of elevation. And that's where this man's son is, who is at the point of death, we're told. The father, though, hearing that Jesus is back in the area, he rushes up to see Jesus, to Cana. We don't know a lot about this guy. Not even told if he was a Jew or a Gentile. He's probably a Jewish leader, a Jewish official. The text calls him a royal official, a basilikos, the Greek word, uh, in service to the basilus, which is a king. Um, he was most likely in the service to, to King Herod Antipas, who was not really a king, um, but he was kind of viewed as such. Either way, he thinks enough about Jesus that he makes the 20-mile trek, and he's bold enough to ask Jesus to walk 20 miles back to heal his son. But what does Jesus say to him? Well, it's not very encouraging, actually. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, Jesus is not making a theological point here. He's not saying that for some people, they must see signs and wonders or they won't believe. What he's actually doing is he's calling out his audience for their skepticism. He's calling them out because of their doubt. And we don't see this in the English language, but in the English language, you, Y-O-U, you can't distinguish between singular and plural, but in the, Hebrew, in the Greek, rather, you can. So this is actually, he's saying you, plural, He's actually talking to everyone here. It's kind of like, I guess, for us, we might say, here in Alabama, it's the difference between y'all and all y'all. 
right? So we might say, you might look at somebody and you might say, hey, y'all are welcome to come over for dinner tonight. But, you know, you got to say it right if you're talking to a crowd. You're going to say, look, all y'all are invited, right? So it's kind of, this is actually you plural. So he's not just speaking to the royal official. He's actually talking to everybody. And he's saying, look, I'm aware of your skepticism. In fact, your skepticism is so bad that you won't even believe unless you see a miracle or a sign. The official does have some faith. After, after all, he's walked 20 miles, mostly uphill, to find Jesus. But he believes that Jesus has to be in a specific place. Capernaum, he has to heal in a certain way, you know, probably by actually touching his son. So he has some faith, but Jesus calls him out for his limited perspective. He wants this man to see, see he wants to see his faith strengthened. Here's our first point. Growing in faith involves trusting Jesus to operate in whatever way he chooses. It means recognizing Jesus for who he is and actually trusting him to work in whatever way he chooses. But if you're anything like me, what I want to do is I want to bring my request to the Lord, but I also want to provide an outline on how to actually address it, to answer that. Janine and I were in uh, Indianapolis a few months ago, and one evening we ran into a man that we hadn't seen in a long time, and we, we know the, the guy's whole family, really love the family. So we're catching up, and I said, hey, I said to this guy, hey, how's your brother John doing? I mean, how's your brother doing? Um, and he said, oh, John's doing great. His whole family's doing great. In fact, they just got back from a vacation in Naples, Florida. Everybody do, is doing well. And I said, oh, that's I'm glad to hear. I said, he's got to be getting near retirement, isn't he? He's got to be, what, in his mid-70s? This guy just had this big belly laugh, and he said, no, my brother John is 56, but I'll, I'll tell him you said that. I said, no, if you don't mind, don't, don't tell him I said that. But then later on, we got back in our hotel room. Janine asked me, as, as any good wife would, she said, hey, why did, you, why did you volunteer an age for him? Like, why didn't you just let him tell you how old his brother was? I said, you know, I love that guy. I really love that guy, but he can be very long-winded. I guess once I asked him the question, I also wanted to give him the answer so he'd just get to it. And I think sometimes, I'm embarrassed to say that, but that's kind of what I thought. I, you know, sometimes I think we, we, we bring our request to, to the Lord, but we also want to give him the answer too. Here's what I really want, and here's what I'm sharing with you, but here's the way I'd like you to answer. The thing is, God rarely actually answers the exact way we suspect or expect him to, does he? He has a better plan. His wisdom is infinite. And growing in faith means learning to trust Jesus to work in the manner he pleases. And we see that here. I love the dad's response. Jesus gives him a rebuke. He's not, the dad is not thrown off by it. He's not deterred. It's almost if the rebuke goes right over the guy's head. He just repeats his request, only this time more bluntly. He says, sir, come down before my child dies. Uh, one New Testament scholar, Frederick Bruner, calls this a rebuke withstanding faith. A rebuke withstanding faith. It's the same kind we saw uh, from Jesus in the first miracle at Canaan. Remember, she came to Jesus, and I don't know, the whole thing seemed kind of random, but she came to Jesus and she said, Jesus, uh, they're, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, why are you telling me this? Well, what does this have to do with me? This has nothing to do with me. My hour has not yet come. And, and, and Jesus' mother then continues, uh, 
She doesn't even pay attention to that. She just tells the servers, look, do whatever this guy tells you to do. Do whatever he says. She's not crushed by his rebuke. And I, I did a survey, and kind of, I guess, sort of a survey in preparation uh, this week as I was looking at this passage, and, and I noticed that there are a lot of times that Jesus rebukes in the Scriptures. He rebukes the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He rebukes the crowd. He rebukes his mom. He rebukes the disciples. And in this sort of age of niceness that we're in, where you can't even disagree with somebody without being labeled something horrible, Jesus would have a very difficult time, just like he did then. But unlike when we correct, Jesus always does so with complete self-control, with tenderness, with a very intentional purpose. And what's impressive here is the way that this man actually responds. See, rebuke with standing faith is the faith that even through the trials and tragedies and unevenness of life, it hangs in there and it just keeps asking. And as believers, we're going to experience rebukes too. We do experience rebuke. Sometimes Jesus rebukes us through the preaching of his word. If the word of God represents the mind of Christ, as Paul says, then sometimes we get rebuked when God's word is proclaimed. Plenty of times when even as I'm preaching, the Lord is gently rebuking me. In my preparation throughout the week, the Lord is rebuking me. Sometimes the Lord rebukes us through preaching. Now, rebuke is not the ultimate goal of preaching. It is the penultimate goal. It is second to the ultimate. The ultimate goal is to encourage God's people in Christ. I love what one friend of mine says. He says, What I need in every sermon is law that reduces me to nothing and the gospel that throws that nothingness into Christ where everything is created. So in other words, yeah, give me the commands. Give me the commands. Tell me what the word of God says. And by the spirit of God, I'm going to do everything I can to obey that. I'm going to plead with God for the power to obey. So yes, please give me the commands. But more than that, give me Jesus. Give me the one who actually obeyed all the commands fully so that when I fail, my status with God is not in jeopardy. Give me Jesus who destroyed destroyed death and hell and anxiety and shame and guilt on the cross. Give me Jesus who satisfied all the requirements of the law. The aim of preaching is to take us to Christ. Kelsey Klimbara is a writer and editor for a blog that I read. She's also a theology student. She says this, Where we find Scripture, we find Christ. And therefore, where we find Scripture, we find a genuine comfort that breaks us free of our own thoughts and points us to the cross. Sometimes Jesus rebukes us in preaching. Sometimes Jesus rebukes us in just our regular Bible intake as we're reading the Word. This happened to me just last week as I was reading in, in Kings, and, and I saw the extent that Josiah went to to actually destroy the pagan altars. He didn't just burn them to the ground. He didn't just burn them to the ground and scatter the ashes. He looked up in the hill, and he saw a, a grave site, and he commanded people to exhume the dead bodies and to take the bones and to scatter the bones over the ashes of the burned-up altars. And I read that and I thought, 
you know, I don't really treat the idols of my heart that way. Sometimes I let the idols of my heart just linger. Sometimes I actually give fuel to the idols of my heart. And I was rebuked by reading the scripture. Sometimes Jesus rebukes us as we read the scripture. Sometimes Jesus rebukes us through a friend. Sometimes he sends somebody else along to actually rebuke us, and it's actually from Christ. Remember uh, what, uh, how Paul rebukes Peter in, uh, in Galatians chapter 2, or how Priscilla and Aquila correct Apollos in Acts 18, correcting, rebuking. How do you respond when Jesus rebukes you through a fellow believer? The warnings in Proverbs alone against dismissing correction are pretty sobering, really. The one who re- rejects rep- reproof leads others astray, Proverbs 10. The one who ignores instruction is stupid. I'm just reading the Bible to you, Proverbs 12. The one who ignores instruction is a fool, Proverbs 15. The one who hates instruction despises himself. Whoever hates reproof will die, Proverbs 15. The warnings against ignoring correction are are stunning and staggering. Correction is for our benefit. This royal official is rebuked by Jesus. But what does he do? He keeps asking for help. Already his faith is being expanded by Jesus. And listen to this. Often it's the act of persisting that God uses to strengthen our faith. As we cry out to him, he delights in reassuring us of his presence. We may not get from God exactly what we ask for. We may not get exactly what we want. It may even appear that we're experiencing the Lord's discipline, or maybe it, it seems like we're getting rebuked by the Lord. The question is, can we sustain these rebukes and keep believing that Jesus means well? Will we keep asking even though present circumstances don't look great, and even though they may appear as though he's not with us. Here's our second point this morning. Growing in faith entails receiving a rebuke from Jesus, yet persisting with our petitions. Petition is just a request. Bring our petitions before the Lord. It means growing in faith means that even when we receive a rebuke, from Jesus, maybe one of the means that I just uh, described, we still keep asking, we still keep venting, we still keep going to the Lord with openness and honesty. That's hard to do, though. Is it's hard to, it's hard to go back to someone, you know, if if you've been rebuked. Nobody nobody likes the way it feels to be rebuked. I don't like the way it feels to be rebuked. When you're corrected, it's kind of hard to go back to that person. See, if our value and worth are determined by how others see us, then we must put on this pretense of perfection, and then rebukes will cause us to shut down or or disappear altogether. They threaten to destroy us, but if our value and worth are anchored in God's love for us, how God sees us in Christ then we can actually receive correction, even rebuke, and persist in coming to God. Pastor and author David Mathis writes, the love of Christ for us is the skeleton key able to unlock for us the power of rebuke. With him in view, the one who loved me and gave himself for me, 
No longer must reproof be an assault on our very foundations and deep sense of worth, but it becomes a fresh opportunity for growth and greater joy. See, only in Jesus can we find our identity, not in being faultless, but being shown love when we were full of faults. In fact, only in Jesus can we find an identity, not in being sinless, but in being died for while we were sinners. And so that actually changes the way that we see the world, the way that we see others, the way that we see ourselves. With God's unbending approval for us of us in Jesus Christ, we can actually rebu- re- embrace rebuke for the blessing that it is. So what should we do when we feel rebuked by Jesus? We keep approaching him. We keep asking him to answer our requests. We keep going to his presence, into his presence. Like this royal official did, we keep crying out to him and believing that he will help us. Look at verses 50 through 54. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that it that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. He believed, he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This man initially thinks, well, if Jesus is going to help me, he's got to be somewhere near my son. He's got to be in the same room with my son. He thinks, I'm gonna, if I can just get Jesus to come to where my son is, But Jesus doesn't need to walk 20 miles to heal someone. He just says the word. And that's what he does. He says the word, and this man's son is healed, and that's enough for the father. He doesn't demand a sign, doesn't demand evidential proof. He turns and makes his way toward home. As he's heading home, a couple of his servants run up to meet him with good news. they got good news they want to share with him. And they say, your, your son, he's turned the corner. He's, he's alive. He, he looks like he's out of the woods. And the dad says, yeah, but when did this happen? They say at the seventh hour, which was the exact moment when Jesus told this man that his son would live. And this man responds by believing in Jesus. And not just this man, his whole household, his children, his parents perhaps, his in-laws. Everybody turns in faith to Jesus. This man recognized the power of Jesus He recognized that this miraculous event was nothing short of an answer to his prayer. Here's our final point this morning. Growing in faith means seeing God's gracious hand of providence in the favorable and the unfavorable outcomes of life. God's providence is this doctrine that says that all things in life happen, not by chance, but from our Father's hand. Providence holds that every single event, all of event throughout all of history, all of it happens according to God's divine decree. Sometimes those events are sad and painful and devastating. At other times, they're sweet and immediately pleasant. Sometimes from our human lens, they're favorable. Other times, they're unfavorable. But recognizing providence is a key to growing in our faith. In fact, one old-time theologian says it this way, Ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. The highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. 
Here the father in this story, he recognizes that his son's healing, his son has turned the corner, this fever has left his son, and he realizes this is not just a happenstance. This is because of Jesus. Now, he could have responded in a different way, couldn't he? He could have said, well, you know, that's just finally the medication works. Or, you know, it just happened that he got enough rest and his fever broke. There are a number of ways that he could have tried to excuse away what happened, even the fact that of the timing of it. But that's not what he does. He believed. His whole family believed. Now, there's no doubt that the gospel writer, John, here, he includes this story in his gospel as a way to invite us to consider our own faith. Is our own faith growing? Is our own faith stagnant? Are we practicing those exercises, those rhythms that actually strengthen our faith? That's certainly a part of it. But like all the stories in the gospels, even this one is mainly about Jesus. It's not about us. It's not even about the royal official. It's about Jesus. This is about Jesus, namely the power of Jesus to impart life. Jesus' word immediately gives life. This is the promise of the gospel. I was reading this week an article in a a tech journal, um, and I was reading this article on artificial intelligence, AI. And to be honest with you, most of it was over my head. But, I, but there, was so, there was a fascinating interview with a guy who's big in the tech world and has watched the, the tech world sort of advance o- over the decades. And he said, he said in this interview, he said, um, having been around a while, he saw, how, he saw the impact of PCs, right, personal computers. And then he said, I saw the impact of local area networks, you know, LAN networks. And then he said, I saw the impact of, of wide area networks. And then I saw the impact of the internet, and it was so profound. And then he said, I saw the impact of of mobile, and then wireless. And he's sort of tracing this trajectory. And then he said, I'm seeing the impact of artificial intelligence. And he went on to say, it dwarfs anything that I've ever seen. He said, AI will change everything in terms of making our lives exponentially better. Can you imagine voice-activated everything? Anything you want. You just say the word. He said, AI is going to change everything. And I don't doubt him at all. He's probably true. But all around us, we read about some new product, some new service, some new technology that promises to make our lives that much better, to simplify our lives, to enhance our lives to make our lives more fulfilling. And some of these technologies, I think, are actually going to accomplish that. But here's the deal. None of those advances offers rest for our souls. None of those advances actually offers me a real purpose for living. None of those advances actually provides for me a sense of true belonging. In fact, some of the the advances in technologies actually rob us of a sense of belonging. None of those advances can actually provide for me forgiveness. And most importantly, none of those advances can bring about spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. Now, if I were preaching at Pine Grove Baptist Church, somebody would say amen. Amen. (laughs) None of those things. While they offer great things, and while I totally believe that they're going to help us in the future, none of those things can provide spiritual life. But Jesus has the power to speak the word 
and bring about life. He doesn't have to be even around. He can be 20 miles away. He can be 1,000 miles away. He can be a universe away. He says the word, and people who are dead are brought to life. That's the sort of power that this Jesus has. He just says the word. And people who are dead in their sin, lost in their own rebellion, walking down a path, holding hands with their father, the devil, and God brings them to a place of repentance and faith. He just says the word. He's constantly speaking a word for those who are his own. He's speaking his approval over them to the Father this very moment. If you are in Christ, at this very moment, Jesus is speaking his approval over you to the Father. He's speaking new life into existence. He's rescuing people from darkness, and he's interceding for us, his children, even now, by his very word. He has the power to speak the words, you are forgiven. He has the power to speak the word, you are the delight of my Father. And he has the power to speak the words, it is finished. In his death and resurrection, Jesus crushed the serpent's head, vanquishing the last enemy of every believer, making it possible and certain that every child of God would be forever secure in him and ensuring that goodness and mercy would not just follow us, but would follow after us, would hound us, would overwhelm us because of God's great love for us in Christ. Let's pray.